Hello, health investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Eric Brotman. Eric is the CEO of BFG Financial Advisors with over 25 years of experience as a trusted advisor. He believes financial literacy is the key to well being and is the author of multiple books on personal finance and the host of the Don't Retire, Graduate podcast. Eric's approachable and actionable financial advice has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes.com, Yahoo Finance, The Baltimore Sun, and other publications. In the episode, Eric shares how most people think about retirement the wrong way, interview questions to ask a potential financial advisor, DIY tips if you choose to manage your finances yourself, creative ways to eliminate debt, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store. That is, until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Eric. Enjoy. Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Thanks, Brooke. It's so good to be here. I'm excited about our conversation. I think we should just mention, because my husband's going to listen to this, that I'm currently wearing a Princeton sweatshirt, and we had a lively conversation about how you're not a huge fan of Princeton. Well, I mean, if you're going to start off, you, you know, coming in hot right from the very <laughs> beginning, what I would say is that that uh, as a Penn guy, Princeton uh-huh. is not my favorite place. And, and I deliberately did not apply to Princeton because I was there for a tour, and I didn't last 15 minutes before I said, not for me. Yeah. So... Now he's already tuned out, but hopefully we've kept all the other listeners. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) I would love if you could start off by telling us a bit about your background and specifically what led you to write Don't Retire, Graduate, which I think is such a cool title for a book. 
My, well, my background, I've been a, a financial advisor now for almost 30 years, which dates me and is horrifying, actually. Uh, but but I, in school, I studied English and psychology, and I love to write, and I love to, to think and understand behavior and understand people. Um, and I, I fell into the financial world literally by accident. Like most English majors, I was either going to teach or go to law school, so I had applied to law schools. And went to work for a brokerage firm and fell in love. I was in the legal department and I fell in love with the the, the financial business. And so I, I have now been at that for 30 years and have built a practice that's that's somewhat unique. I mean, we're, we have a, a different kind of culture, a different kind of deliverable. Um, we're reaching a different audience. And it's really been a, a, a special experience. Don't Retire, Graduate came from this idea that I have watched now hundreds of couples or individuals retire in the traditional sense. And it's actually a fate worse than death. Hmm. It's an absolutely terrible idea to retire in the way that that retirement is sort of imposed upon you. It's disappearing. It's retreating. I think being financially independent is a phenomenal goal. But the idea of going from 50 or 60 hours a week to sitting around watching daytime TV and waiting to die is a, a recipe for misery. So I think you graduate into retirement, meaning you hit financial independence, and then you find something that that gives you a passion for life, a reason to get out of bed every morning, get you excited to get going. Mm. I don't know if this is true, but I remember reading an article years ago that in Europe and you know countries in Europe, other places, they kind of think about retirement differently than we do in the United States and more of kind of what you're describing. Have you seen that to be true or? Not only have I seen it to be true, um, historically, I know it to be true. The The idea of retirement was created by a German named Otto von Bismarck, who created a, a landscape that basically said by 60 you you have to be out of the workforce. You should be happy with the retirement we force you into. Like it wasn't even optional. It was, you're no longer useful. Please go away. And for centuries, if not millennia, human beings have always looked to their elders for advice. Think about the villages where the elder had the biggest tent, where when you had the really big problems, you went to the senior most members of your community to get advice because they had seen so much and lived through so much. They were the wisest. And yet all of a sudden it was, they're no longer useful and we want to put them out to pasture. Hmm. And it, it was less than 200 years ago. And since that time, there is a tendency to work with the idea that you can't wait to not work as if, as if what you do every day is toil and torture. If you find something you love to do, don't ever give it up. It's mm -hmm. part of who you are. And, and I will say in, in Europe, specifically in Europe, um, people tie who they are less to what they do than we do in the United States. In the US, if you ask somebody, oh, tell me about yourself, the first thing they say is, I'm an accountant, I'm an architect, I'm a ballerina. It, the first thing people identify with who they are is what they do, mm -hmm. which means that when you don't do what you do anymore and you consider that the measure of who you are, you've literally given up your identity. And that to me is tragic. Yeah. It's so interesting that you were a, you were into English and psychology. I was an English teacher for many years before I switched into my role now as nutrition coach. But mm -hmm. uh, I 
love having financial experts on this podcast because it's something that I'm very interested in myself, but I've always thought I kind of gravitated towards English because I'm not really a math brain, Mm -hmm. if you will, but it seems as if you had both gifts. You had the (laughs) right and left brain stuff going on and were able to gravitate into this. Uh, Was that a difficult challenge for you to kind of no, we all, I mean, we all have our own gifts, as you well yeah. know, and, and I had a gift for language and communication, but also for math. Wow. What I, what I did not have is any athletic ability whatsoever. And there were certain gifts I just did not have, um, not artistic. Um, I, I can't draw anything. I do stick figures, not great with foreign language, still can't write in cursive. Okay. Yeah. So there, you know, we all have our own skill sets, yeah. um, but I love to write. I love to think, I love to research and, uh, and debate and, um, and come up with new ways to look at various, various issues or problems. Um, I love to have a big tent. I love to listen to a lot of different opinions and a lot of different people and try and put together my own, uh, thesis basically out of that. So, um, but I also really math came very easily to me as a kid. You know, I, I went to Penn thinking I was going to study economics and I wow. fell in love with English. So I, I literally have a bachelor's degree in late 18th century romantic poetry. Wow. You know how often that comes up in conversation? <laughs> Absolutely never. Well, today it did. So I'm pleased with that. But <laughs> Wordsworth and Shelley and Byron and Blake and Keats and my favorite Coleridge never come up in conversation unless I'm asked, what, what do you mean you were an English major? Yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting. And you're welcome for making this degree worthwhile by talking about it today. That's great. Well, I I love to write. And now that I've written three books and I write for Forbes.com and I write ebooks and white papers and, um, you know, I was able to use my my enjoyment of writing and language with my ability to take something that's often um, taboo, which is money and something that's often difficult, which is math and make it accessible to just about anybody. I mean, I, this book is not a textbook. It's not written by a math wonk for math wonks. It's written, um, by somebody who has seen and watched and helped people with the qualitative, not just the quantitative pieces of that next chapter of life. And, you know, I'm in my fifties now I'm, I'm staring down that chapter myself and saying, well, what do I want to be when I grow up? Mm-hmm. And I've been I've been hosting a podcast now. Uh, we're we're finishing our fifth season, and I ask every single guest what they want to be when they grow up. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who's not familiar with the show, they get very surprised by that question because they haven't been asked that since they were eight years old. Yeah. And I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you what you said, but I can tell you when I was eight, I would have said I, I want to be a professional football player. That was my plan. I was very small, very slow, and uh, and not very strong, and as I mentioned, had no athletic ability. So it was the wrong dream for me. But nonetheless, that's what I would have said at eight. Today, what I'd like to do is I'd like to continue to advance our profession. I'd like to change the world in terms of personal finance and financial literacy. I'd really like to make a difference. And so I don't know how long I'm going to do what I do day in, day out as a profession, and at what point it's going to be consulting and speaking and teaching, which comes back to that English degree, too. I, I, I love to teach. And so, you know, I, I taught graduate courses um, at the college level for um, for the financial planning curriculum. So I got to teach and be a, an adjunct professor teaching finance as an English major. Very cool. Very. You know, I, I guess I've I guess I've done a little of everything. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm kind of synthesizing is let's say you're in a profession you hate. 
you still have your retirement to kind of explore some new area in a way that feels good to you. Or if you're in a profession you love, it can continue with you into retirement, but look a little different. So I know a lot of people, if they reach financial independence and then they're thinking, I want to travel and I want more free time to spend time with my grandkids. So you're not maybe working the nine to five you once were, but as you said, maybe you're doing consulting or speaking or I don't know, running a website or doing something on the side that still gives you that purpose of what you love, but having your schedule kind of work for you. Is that what you're suggesting? I, I think to a great degree, yes. I think if you're in a job that you hate, yeah, um, it, it depending where you are in your life, hopefully it's not too late to change that. And I don't mean run out and quit your job and hope for the best. I mean, um, use it as an opportunity to learn new skills or to to network or to create a a different path for yourself. Because just because you're in one line of work, it's it's not you're not a um, uh, it's not involuntary servitude. You're not stuck in that line of work for the rest of your life. I'm sure if you. Um, if you went to dental school and you have giant dental loans and you're a dentist and you decide you hate dentistry, that's going to be a difficult challenge financially to pivot. Mm-hmm. But it's still not impossible, even for someone like that to say, you know what, I thought this was my passion and it's not. Mm-hmm. And I need to find something that that makes me enthusiastic about getting up in the morning. Right. So if you've been in a job for 20 years and you hate it, that's 19 years too many. You know, don't spend another 10 or 15 dreading it and wishing it was Friday at five. Life's too short. And this is not a dress rehearsal. This is our one shot. So make it count. Yeah. I mentioned I was an English teacher for 12 years after college up until here here goes the math again. So I guess I was 34 when I stopped teaching English. And it's when my husband and I made a shift from New York City to California. And I was thinking, do I get another teaching job or do I pursue this new passion of mine, which is still teaching in a lot of ways, but really coaching on nutrition and specifically weight loss. And so I've built my own company in the past few years. And the way I can tell that I'm doing something I love so much more is that I get really excited on Sunday night when I look at the next week rather than having the dreaded kind of using quotes right now, but the Sunday scaries, as people call them, of not wanting to go in. And it's not that I was miserable teaching, but I just identified that it served me as a profession for a while. And I was kind of losing my vigor to show up and teach day in, day out. I was also at an all boys high school. So there's challenges in that. But uh, yeah, I think what you say is a very powerful thought that you can pivot. It's scary. It's not always easy. And there are ways you can do it to be, you know, kind of financially responsible and safe. But then thinking of retirement. So if you love your job, making it kind of work for you in ways that maybe it couldn't have if you were younger or, you know, I guess not as financially independent yet. How does that, how does that look for you? If you love your current job, but then you're going to retire, you don't want to do the nine to five anymore. Well, I think that's when you have to decide if the millennials are onto something with the side hustle concept. Oh, yeah. You know, do you find another way to do some freelance work or to do some consulting work or coaching or teaching or mentoring or um, or do you take 
um, that line of work that you're in, but a, but find a way to do it on a smaller scale, either as a part-time person within your organization, or maybe going to another organization and working with the young folks in that profession as a, a different role where now you you come in and you're the mentor in, in whatever the industry is. I think there are ways to do it. it it's it's sad to me when I see folks who, who really hate what they're doing and can't wait to quit. And, you know, anecdotally, and I will, I will say that this fits directly into your messaging, and that is that I, I've done a talk on the three secrets of the happiest retirees. And I've spent so much of my life looking at this. And the, the thing that retirees who are successful retirees. And by successful, I don't mean financially. I mean, people who quote unquote retire, since we're both using air quotes on this audio show. <laughs> um, it, so for people who successfully retire, that means that they have, they have um, completed their working years in a way that, ha- that they're still enriched. Okay. There are three things in common. The first tends to be they're debt free. They don't owe anybody anything. And, you know, I, I beat on debt because I think adverse debt, consumer debt, student loans, lots of those things are just brutal in terms of your wealth building, in terms of your health. They're brutal. Um, that doesn't mean that no one should use a mortgage or business loan. There's reasons why leverage can matter. But for our purposes here, when you retire, it would be better if you didn't have a payment, basically for anything, unless it's something that you want to do. So that's what number one. Number two is they've maintained their health. Because I don't care how rich you are. If you're not healthy, nothing else is going to matter. And I don't believe people wake up one day at 63 and go, you know what? It's time to get healthy. I'm sure there are some of those folks. But it is a heck of a lot harder to get healthy than it is to stay healthy. And the same is true with wealth. It is much easier to stay wealthy than to become wealthy. It takes an enormous amount of, uh, of grit to get healthy or to get wealthy. It takes tenacity one way or the other to stay there, but it's so much easier. So I think people need to start taking care of themselves in their 20s and 30s and 40s so that when they are 65, they're thinking, I'm not sure what I want to do, but I'm able to hike that mountain if I want to. Mm-hmm. I can still be active. I can play with my grandkids. I can take that that bicycle trip that I've been wanting to do. Or, you know, I see so many people who put off those big trips and then they get there and they're not healthy enough to do them or their spouse passes away or something happens and they never do them. Mm-hmm. So first is debt free. Second is maintaining their health. And the third is to have a passion, a, a, um, an absolute uh, an absolute reason to get out of bed. And I, I know I've mentioned that a few times, but I, I think it's the most important thing because if you don't have that, if there's no reason to get up in the morning, you will eventually sleep later and later and later until you're one of those people that's in your pajamas till noon. And don't get me wrong on the occasional Saturday, that's not a bad gig, but if it was every day of your life, it's a very depressing kind of thing. And so it, to, to me, it's about taking care of yourself physically. And I, I, I think wealth and health have an awful lot in common. I, agree, I think a yeah. financial and a financial advisor is an awful lot like a nutritionist or a personal trainer. Yes. You know, all of us know how to do sit-ups and push-ups. We don't need someone to tell us to do them. But I know for myself, I have a personal trainer because if I didn't, I wouldn't work out as much or as hard or as successfully, not because I don't know how to do it, but because the accountability partner makes sure that I show up and I do it. I do the work because somebody's saying, give me 25, you can do this instead of my being self-trained. And some people can do it on their own and God love them. But 
I need an accountability partner. I want an accountability partner for my health and wellness. And I think a lot of people need and want that for their financial wellness. And it's just kind of offloading something to someone else. I mean, could you do it on your own? Yes. But would it require a lot of research and piecing together a strategy that works for you and all this time and energy? Whereas if you're in a position to hire someone, then we, I talk about decision fatigue with my clients of how we make thousands of decisions every day. And so if you don't have something prepared or at least an idea of what's going to happen for dinner, you're probably not going to be making the best choices at 7 p.m. after working all day, picking the kids up, going to the soccer practice. I mean, you're just completely wiped out at that point. But when it comes to all these decisions we're making on a day-to-day basis, if you can just offload a piece of the puzzle that's so important, like health or wealth, to someone else who's a real expert and can just give you the direct guidance you need and you can avoid all the noise out there. I mean, that is huge. I think so. I, I think it makes sense. If if you love it and it's a passion of yours, go for it. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the best use of your time, any of these various things. There's nothing that we do as financial advisors, it, none of it's neurosurgery. Yeah. None of it is something people cannot do for themselves. But most people either have a fear or they have some emotional baggage around money. There's lots of taboo, especially with couples, because, you know, you and your husband, and I'm not going to put you on the spot, but you and your <laughs> husband both grew up, you grew up in different families, learning different lessons about money, none of which were taught in school and probably none of which were taught particularly well. And if one of you watched your parents fight about money, it will impact you for the rest of your lives the way you bring that into a marriage. And again, right. I'm not not putting you on the spot, but we, we bring those things into our relationships and then we teach our children, whether we know it or not, we are demonstrating behavior around money, whether it's throwing money around like it's water, whether it's spending money we don't have, whether it's um, you know turn, unplugging every appliance in the house every time you use it because you're worried about the electric bill. You know, whether it's whether it's uh, some people, some people spend nothing. They, they literally hoard um, and never actually get to enjoy whatever wealth they've created. Other people, as soon as it hits their bank account, it's gone. And then some. Mm-hmm. And our kids learn this from watching us and from listening to us. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it is a it's an important thing, not only to offload. You mentioned sort of offloading the responsibility, the decision fatigue. And I think that's an interesting way to look at it. And I agree with you. I look at it as accountability. I look at it as if I say that I'm going to save $500 a month and six months later, I'm talking to somebody and I have to say, I did it. I saved $500 a month. I'm that much more likely to do it. Mm-hmm. Or I didn't do it. <laughs> or or I didn't do it. And now this is the worst thing ever. You know, if, if you go to, I, I use dentists a lot too. I'm picking on dentists today, but you know, if you go to the dentist and they say, you really need to floss or we're going to be pulling some of your teeth and six months later you show up and you haven't flossed, it, odds are they're going to be pulling some teeth. Right. So it's better to be able to say, yes, I have a plan. I have a, I have an accountability partner and I'm going to take care of this and then to do it. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, 
I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at The Health Investment. Now, back to the episode. When seeking a financial advisor, what questions would you recommend that somebody ask to find somebody who's a really good fit for them? It's a great question. There's actually an entire chapter in my book uh, that is an interview that you can do with potential financial advisors. Cause I do think you should interview a few before you determine who you want to work with. It's, it's an, it's a relationship that's almost as intimate as medicine, but I'll give you a few of them just sort of off the cuff, the kinds of things that you might want to know. Um, you want to know who a typical client of that advisor is. You never really want to be somebody's biggest client or their smallest one. You want to be working with someone who has similar investment philosophies to yours. You know, I always tell folks we don't represent cowboys. And what I mean by that is if somebody comes in and they want to be slinging stocks and, and trying the hottest this and that and, and they want tips and all, we're the wrong place. That's just not what we do. Mm-hmm. And I'd rather tell somebody in advance, this is the wrong fit for you, than figure it out the hard way and have them upset with me. Mm-hmm. So, and that's just one example. But so figuring out who they represent. Um, understanding how they're paid because financial advisors are all different. The relationships, it's a very peculiar industry because there are very few barriers to entry. If you think about it, in order to practice law, you have to go to law school and then you have to pass the bar. You can do accounting, but you're not a CPA until you've passed the CPA and there's all kinds of requirements behind that. You're a financial advisor by name, more air quotes, the day you show up and start your job. Well, that's horrifying. That means the barrier to entry is almost nil. So how do you know the difference between somebody who is a salesperson and somebody who's credentialed? Yeah, exactly. And what do all those credentials mean? Yeah. Like, what does that background mean? It's alphabet soup. Right. <laughs> so those are the kinds of things to understand. Uh, and, and, and I think understanding how someone is paid, understanding who do they represent? You know, if you if you work with an advisor who is a W-2 employee of an insurance company or a bank or a brokerage firm or a trust company, no matter what they do, there is the potential conflict of interest where they say, oh, you need some insurance and look what we have here on our shelf, our product. And that to me is a, it's, it's a problem. That doesn't mean there aren't terrific advisors who work for these kinds of companies. But if, if your advisor is a W-2 of an individual company, they have a duty of loyalty to the company that is greater than their duty of loyalty to their client. Mm. That would make me nervous as a client. I want to work with somebody independent who is a fiduciary, who does have that responsibility to put the client's interest first and only the client's interest and who are not tied to any institution where there's a conflict of interest. That, that to me is a logical way to do it. Right. It's making me think that last part of when I go to a new hairdresser and at a lot of places of salons, they have all of the shampoos and things Mm -hmm. that they sell up front, but when they're very pushy of, Oh, I use this product and this product I had in New York city one time, they brought a basket to me of all the products they use. And there were like 15 things in there, even a lip gloss they put on me at the end, which I was like, I'm not here to get my 
makeup done. Uh, mm-hmm. But then there was so much pressure to kind of buy mm-hmm. these products. And I just was very off put by that and didn't go back there. Like, I don't, I don't like that kind of pushy feeling. So that's what it's, what you're t- saying is kind of making me think that there are some that are kind of trying to sell you other things when they're tied to some external. I think so. Yeah. Okay. And, and I think it pays to have someone who's as objective as possible, as independent as possible. Um, I, I want to be able to be agnostic. Mm-hmm. If someone, if someone comes to us and says, you know, Hey, I've been working with XYZ firm for 15 years and I'd like a second opinion. You, you know, we can take a look at it from 50,000 feet and really say, there's going to be some things about what XYZ has done. That's terrific some things that maybe are less terrific and some things that I really don't like at all. And that's okay. We're, we're all allowed to have different approaches, different opinions, different strategies. Mm-hmm. But if you show up and you say, I've been working with XYZ for 15 years and every darn box is checked with an XYZ product, then you've been sold. Yeah. Okay. What if somebody, you know, we talked about with nutrition, with money, there are some people who can just manage everything on their own and hold themselves accountable. So if that person is listening and they're thinking, no, I've really got this. I say I'm going to save $500 a month and I always do it. And I'm very kind of savvy with stuff like this. What would your advice be to that person in terms of building? I know you talk about the difference uh, between high income and high net worth. Kind of how do you build a high net worth? What are your kind of best tips for that? on your own for the do it yourselfer. I, yeah. I think, I think it's all about not, not only understanding your own strategy, but having a really good tracking mechanism, a, a software package or a, uh, an online, uh, resource or a robo advisor or something where, where you actually do have a scoreboard. I, I like Quicken software for myself, um, which is where I track all of my uh, income and expenses and credit card charges and it downloads and I, I can see trends. I know what I'm spending, what our household is spending on dining or on groceries or on education or on other things. And it, it allows me as a, um, a, as a household, um, as someone who's just balancing our, our finances, to be able to really get a full clear picture of what we are spending and what we are saving. Okay. And so I think even if you want to do this yourself, I, I use some of the technology and some of the tools that exist to keep you honest so that you're not guessing. Okay. Yeah. Very sound advice. You and other financial advisors talk about paying yourself first. Can you explain what you mean in your own terms by that and kind of how to make that happen? Sure. Um, paying yourself first is a, a concept that forces you to automate some of your savings and investment, and more importantly, forces you to live on less than 100% of what you make, which ultimately, if you're spending more than you make, it doesn't matter what those numbers are, you will eventually have a problem. Mm-hmm. A big problem or a small problem, but a problem nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> so paying yourself first means making sure that from every paycheck or every month or every um, or, or, or on a periodic basis, ideally in an automated way, some percentage of your income is going to things that are building wealth for you. That could be your 401k. It could be your health savings account. It could be a, a savings account at the bank. It could be a, a, an insurance policy. It could be any number of things. It could be excess principal to debt. You know, if you've got a student loan and the payment is $300 a month and you send $500 a month, 200 of that becomes extra 
extra cash flow that you're paying yourself first because you're getting out of that sooner. So anything you're doing to build your net worth in an automated way so that you can learn to live on 75 or 80 or 85% of what you make. Mm-hmm. Because what most people do is they, they, they get their paycheck on the first of the month or whatever it is, and they pay all their bills and they hope something's left over at the end of the month. And yeah. sometimes there is, and sometimes there isn't, but it's totally haphazard. If you take the first 10 or 15% or whatever that math is for you, and you take that and you put it away such that it never hits your checking account, mm-hmm. and then you do that same strategy where you live on the 85% that you're actually receiving, it's like a, a it's like a, a fish. A fish in a fishbowl will only grow so big, but if you put it in an aquarium, it'll grow bigger. And if you put it in the ocean, it'll grow bigger still. It forces your budget slash, and I call the budget the B word because I don't love it, but it it forces your spending to be within 85% of the pie instead of 100% of the pie. And it, nothing ensures net worth building, but that is certainly a great way to do it. And so paying yourself first means the first bill you pay before you pay rent or mortgage or education or your car payment or anything else, you put away that X percent for yourself. And then every time you get a raise, keep the percentage the same such that you're putting away more money every time your income goes up or bump the percentage up by one or two points a year so that you're getting even further ahead mm-hmm. and you can build real money without a lot of pain. Right. That's a good point to do a percentage rather than just a fixed amount because then it adjusts for things like a raise, like you said. Another right. financial advisor was talking about this and then I always kind of done it, but I've been way more intentional about it. And I just find it so much more fun because if you pay yourself first, you don't have this feeling all month of, Oh, like I have to save some and I have to be sure not to spend a lot. If you pay everything off, you've paid yourself first, you've invested whatever, then the remaining money is kind of the fun money that you can spend freely without feeling guilty. And I find what? that so much better. 100%. Yeah. You know, people ask, are, are, we, are you going to give us a budget? And the answer is absolutely not. Uh-huh. I, I will calculate for you and our team will calculate for you what percentage you need to put away based on all the ver- the variables we want to assume. We can assume interest rates and, and we can assume rates of return and we can assume based on your age and at what age you want to be independent. We can do a very simple math problem. It sounds like a lot. It's a one pager. It's a simple yeah. math problem. And if I say to you, Brooke, you need to put away 18% in order to hit this goal so that you're financially independent in 2043 or whatever the math, and you put away that 18%, what you spend the other 82%, I do not care. Mm-hmm. If you're one of those people who wants to get a Starbucks every day, go for it. If you want to go to Ruth Chris um, instead of Applebee's, do it. Just don't do it twice a week. Yeah, I don't care where you spend it. Just figure out what that's going to look like. And you decide what's important to you. You cannot afford everything. No one can. Well, very few people. You can't afford everything, but you can afford just about anything you want to if it becomes the most important thing. Mm -hmm. So if your thing is dining out and that's what you want to do, or if your thing is travel, or if your thing is um, self-care, whatever it is, make that a priority and understand that means you will be making everything else less of a priority in that finite Again, I use the B word, that finite budget. <laughs> but I think that that to me resonates so much because I see people doing the pie graph budgeting of this much for dining and this much for clothes. 
And that to me just feels very restrictive. Again, mm-hmm. I feel so many parallels when we're talking with what I talk about my mm-hmm. clients with in terms of nutrition. So there's, you know, like the keto or the intermittent fasting, there's all these things that can feel really restrictive, mm-hmm. but there are ways to go about nutrition in the same way where you learn how to enjoy everything in moderation. And so what you're saying in the way this really resonates with me of you set aside the money and then some months, maybe you spend more on clothes or on dining and other months it's more on travel, but it's not this kind of fixed pie graph budget that is constricting, at least to me. Well, not only is it constricting, but you'll never follow it. Yeah. Companies have to, you know, when you own a company, you have to build a budget and that budget says, this is what we're going to spend on marketing. And this is what we're going to spend on payroll. And this is what we're going to spend on IT. And you have to sort of stick to it. There's a rigid stick to it. And our households aren't that way. Uh-huh. And I don't think very many people want to live that way. It's one way to, to, to work that way, but no one wants to live that way. No. If there's a special occasion, you want to go enjoy it, go enjoy it. And I would say the same is probably true on the nutrition side, though I'm no expert. I am doing intermittent fasting now and I'm having decent success with it. Great. But for, for better or for worse, um, for me, it's really all about calories in and calories out. And the only diet that I've ever been on that works is the hardest diet of all. And I, I, I've heard it referred to as the ELF diet. Have you ever heard of the ELF diet? No. ELF, eat less food. <laughs> and so that's the diet that, you know, for me, I, I like to eat. I, I'm a foodie. I like good wine and I like good food. And I recognize that that means I have to work out like an absolute fiend just to stay even And sometimes that's worth it. Sometimes I'm going to be, you know, I'm getting this meal, but I'm going to pay for it at the gym tomorrow. And other times I'd I'd rather not. So I can get all kinds of nutrition advice from you. This is, this is not a chance for me to get some free advice. I'll I'll call you for that later. (laughs) For sure. Uh, I also heard this whole concept of pay yourself first described by another advisor as when you get the raise or whatever, however much you make, you're always going to kind of increase your B word budget or increase your Mm -hmm. spending to match it. And so if you don't pay yourself first, you're just constantly going to spend more to kind of meet your new raise or whatever. Just that there's some principle, right? That I don't know. Well, first of all, it's, it's the fish in the fishbowl that we talked about. It will always expand. Your lifestyle will expand every time your income goes up if you let it. Right. And what I would say is take that we used 18% in the example with you and it was made up, but take that 82%. When you get a raise, the 82% is still growing and you can still grow your lifestyle within that if you choose. But if you, if you say, oh, my, my savings is I'm going to put away $10,000 a year and the rest of it's for fun. Well, if you're making 50 grand, that's 20%. If you're making 500 grand, that's 2%. It mm-hmm. can't yield the same outcome. Yeah. Despite it being the same amount of money. Yeah. No, that's, that's a really good way to think about it. I know you have some creative strategies. You mentioned one for kind of reducing debt, paying, let's say if it's the minimum payment is 300, you give 500, but how can you reduce debt while still paying yourself first? That is one of the great challenges, particularly young people face, particularly around student loans. And it's, it's difficult to do everything. So um, there are a lot of different debt strategies. And you talked about the diet strategies. There's debt strategies. It's, oh, do we do the snowball or the avalanche or whatever? There's all these fancy names for it. <laughs> um, and, and I believe that ultimately the only saving or investing that should ever come before 
debt reduction, excess debt reduction. Number one is if there's free money on the table. So if you put in 6% of your income and your company matches 3%, that match, that 3% is a 50% return the day you put that money in. So you're not going to, your, your debt isn't costing you that much. So that, that becomes a priority. Um, the only other one is potentially the sleep at night fund, your basic savings account, your emergency fund, so that you're not working so hard to pay off the, the student loan that you wind up having to use Visa to pay the, 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 the car payment. Mm-hmm. That's not, you want to build that emergency fund. Beyond that, though, I think adverse debt comes first. And what do I mean by adverse debt? I mean consumer debt car payments, student loans. I'm not talking about mortgages. Uh, Prepaying your mortgage, particularly where rates have been for the last 10 or 15 years, doesn't make sense. Now, today we're seeing 7% again. It was 2%, 2 2.5%, 3% for a number of years, at which point it didn't make sense to prepay it. It was so cheap. Mm -hmm. I told told somebody if they'd be willing to lend me $10 billion at 3%, I'd find a way to be fine. Because I would earn more than three percent on the money, and I'd be able to pay it down and grow wealth. That's not necessarily true at seven or eight or nine percent, though. And so, um, some of it depends on interest rates. You, there are plans now. Secure Act two point in twenty twenty three that just become law has finally codified something that other companies were already doing with their four hundred one ks and four hundred three bs and so forth, which was allowing young people who had big student loan payments to demonstrate at the end of the year that their student loan payments were a certain percentage of their income and then to qualify for the company match anyway, even though they didn't put money in the 401k. That is really good public policy. I I don't know which political party came up with it and I'm not picking sides ever. All I know is it's good public policy. And so there's a, to be able to pay the student loans down and still get that sort of free money into the 401k is a big deal. That was rare and now it's law. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, you know, th- th- I believe that the the loans you should pay off first usually are the highest interest rate loans. They That makes more sense. That's the most expensive money you borrow. But there are exceptions to that. You know, the problem with uh, the problem with rules of thumb is that one size never fits all, Brooke. Yeah. If you think about one size fits all, think about the garments that are one size fits all. Um, I keep coming back to the hospital gown, which is, you know, fashionable for all of us. It fits our all, but it doesn't fit all of our all (laughs) for some of us. So, uh, you know, in that particular case, if you have, let's say you have one note and it's at 15% and it's gruesome, and there's another one at 6% and it's just not a big deal, but the payment is really large on that 4% note, getting rid of that would open up an enormous amount of free cash flow to then work toward the 15%. So one size never fits all. Now, the Quicken software I told you about has a debt reduction tool that allows you to to play that and map that out. I think it's awesome. And you're talking about less than $100 a year for a piece of software. Right. I mean, if if you you can do that or you can do it with with a financial advisor for sure. But looking at all the different variables, minimizing the amount of interest, and then making sure that whenever you pay something off, the cash flow that was going to that now goes to whatever other notes still exist so you can get rid of them all. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's that last part I think is really good. Uh, well, unfortunately, I mean, I could talk to you forever. I have a call coming up soon, so we have to hop off uh, shortly. We already kind of spoke to health and wealth, but I mm-hmm. have- all of my guests at the end. In your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? 
it means a couple of things. One, it means make sure that you're taking care of yourself because if you don't spend the time and energy and money to take care of yourself when you're young and healthy, you will definitely spend it when you're older and less healthy and it won't be nearly as rewarding, pleasant, or helpful. So I think it means do invest in yourself from a, a, a health standpoint, whether that's nutrition or exercise, uh, fitness of any type, all of the above. Uh, it means, it, you know, people get their oil changed every, every six months, but don't get a physical exam. Like get your oil changed, you know, whatever yeah. that looks like. Yeah. The preventative stuff matters. Um, know what your numbers are. Know your, your you know, your blood results. And, and that doesn't mean go crazy with supplements necessarily or with Western medicine or find something that works for you and, and make sure you do that. The other thing from a, a truly investment standpoint, if we're going to stick to purely the financial piece of this, it's to take advantage of the health savings account. Hmm. The HSA is the greatest invention ever in the U.S. tax code. People are misusing them everywhere. It's the only account where you can take a tax deduction for a deposit, grow the money and invest the money with no taxes, and then withdraw it tax-free. There is no other account that does that. And yes, it has to be used for health care, but I don't know very many people who aren't at some point going to have health care expenses when they're older. Right. Even if those healthcare expenses are long-term care premiums or something to to prepare for sort of the cognitive impairment or the things that happen when we get much older sometimes. So um, I would say not only to invest in your actual health, but also to use a health savings account as an investment vehicle that's more powerful than any retirement plan. Wow. Well, great advice. I honestly learned so much. I love, aside from the typical guests I have, nutrition and like you said, multiple times fitness, so important, sleep, stress management. I also love to have financial advisors because I think the wealth part of it is so much of our health. And we think about money all day long. Like we think about what we eat. It's a constant, you know, we're constantly making decisions around what we spend or don't spend. I also love talking to uh, decluttering and organizing experts. That's another mm -hmm. passion of mine of just, mm -hmm. and what you're talking about is also making me think, and a woman was speaking to it of the mental clutter of if you don't have your money in line, like how that is constantly kind of weighing on you in a metaphorical sense. But uh, just so great talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Where can listeners follow and find you? Um, well, I'm all over social media, but the best place to find the Don't Retire Graduate content is at BrotmanMedia.com, which is where you'll find the podcast and some free resources and some financial literacy education and so forth. Um, and then for folks who want to check out our firm, BFGFA.com is where you'll find BFG Financial Advisors. Oh, great. Okay. So I, yeah, I have links to your website. I know you're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, you have your podcast, and I will put also a link to the BFGFA uh, so that people can just quickly click through the show notes and find you at all the places. Thank you so, so much again, Eric, for being here. And I look forward to staying connected with you off air. Sounds great. Take care, Brooke. Be well. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. 
always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.